Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're talking to Luke Olmert, author of We Own the Sky, about the delicate balance between theme and plot, fictionalising personal experience and how a life-threatening situation impacted on his will to write. Days off, she left her a haze, a memory of anaesthetic, drawn curtains and neat vodka, an unsettling quietness, like the birds going silent before an eclipse. I remember sitting in the lounge and staring at a crystal tumbler and wondering whether fingers of vodka were horizontal or vertical. There was a draught that blew through the house, under the doors, through the cracks in the walls. I think I knew where it was coming from, but I couldn't go there. I couldn't go upstairs, because it wasn't our house anymore. Those rooms did not exist as if adults with secrets had declared them out of bounds. So I just sat downstairs in that old, dead house, the cold wind chilling my neck. They had gone, and the silence bled into everything. Oh, I'm sure she would love to see me now, tucked into this gloomy alcove in a grubby little pub. Just me, a flickering TV, some guy pretending to be deaf, selling Disney keyrings that glow in the dark. The front door of the pub has a hole in it, as if someone had tried to kick it down. And through the flapping clear plastic, I can see some kids hanging around in the car park, smoking and doing tricks on an old BMX. I told you so. She wouldn't say it out loud. She had too much class for that. But it would be there on her face, the almost imperceptible raising of an eyebrow, the foreshadowing of a smile. I flick through Facebook squinting my eyes so I can see the screen. My profile is barren without pictures, just a silhouette of a man, and I never liked or commented or wished anyone happy birthday, but I was there every day, scrolling, judging, scrolling, judging, dank little windows into the lives of people I no longer knew, with all their sunrises and sunsets, their cycle trips through the highlands, the endless stream of Instagram pad thai and avocado toast, the unfathomable smugness of their sushi dinners. And then the mothers, oh, those Facebook mothers, the way they talked as if they had invented motherhood, as if they had invented the womb, telling themselves they were different from their own mothers because they ate hummus and had cornrows in their hair and ran a Pinterest board on craft ideas for their recalitrant under five. Hello, Luke Allnut. Thank you for joining us on the Riff Raff podcast. Um, Your debut novel, We Own the Sky, is out now. Please, can you tell us a little bit about your amazing book? Uh, sure. Thanks for having me on, uh, first thing. So We Own the Sky is a love story. Um, it's about an ordinary family living in London and it's about how their life changes in an instant when Jack becomes sick. Um, the book looks at the relationships between the husband and wife, Anna and Rob, and it also looks at, um, in particular, the father's relationship with his son. Um, it ultimately asks the question that no parent should ever have to ask or answer, which is how far would you go to save your child? Mm. So it's obviously it's an incredibly emotional topic and subject matter. Um, and it's one that's, that's quite close to your heart because you've had an experience with bowel cancer and your father sadly passed away. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, that was the inspiration. My dad passed away of a brain tumour in 2012. And then about 10 months later, I was diagnosed with bowel cancer myself. Um, and it was a, obviously a difficult time. Um, and just shortly after that, my wife found out after I was diagnosed with cancer, my wife found out that she was pregnant with our second kid. So we had a lot going on. Um, and I started writing the book when I was doing chemotherapy. 
Um, so, so yeah, I mean, so, so it is a very emotional book, and and that's where all the emotion comes from. Yeah, you can clearly see that in every <laughs> yeah. page. It's um, yeah, it's quite the read. <laughs> and is that what is that was that the inspiration for writing it, or did it was it more of a it felt like you had to write it as a sort of cathartic process, or how were the two related? Uh, that, that's a good question. I think it was it was definitely cathartic. I mean, the process of writing um, was a place for me to channel all my emotions, um, and I felt a kind of kind of like a, almost because I've, I've got two young sons. Um, one was born just after I'd finished my chemotherapy, and I, I thought I was going to die because I was given a kind of 30% chance I would die, which sort of looking back on it, wow. at the moment it seems, that looking back on that 30% figure at the time, that seemed devastating, and now it sort of seems, oh, you know, that's all right, I'll take that, you know, that <laughs> 70% chance of living. But at the time I thought, basically I thought I was going to die, and I thought I wouldn't be able to see my sons grow up, and I felt a kind of preemptive grief, if that's the right phrase, and from then that's where I wanted to write a book about loss and about grief and about um, suffering, um, which doesn't sound like the, uh, but also a book about hope and the things that we take, um, the things, how resilient people are when we're faced with such loss. So it was cathartic, um, but it was also the sort of writer's ego came in a bit. I mean, I'm a journalist and I write full time, but I've always wanted to write a novel and when I was faced with my mortality, I thought, well, now is the best time to do it because I might not have, I can't just write a novel in the future one day because there might not be one day. So I, I wrote a book and that was, you know, my writer's ego speaking. Yeah, yeah. You, you said, I, I think it maybe was in the introduction to the book or maybe an interview that I read. You spoke about how it kind of, this kind of um, thinking that you had a time limit and, um, and wanting to leave a legacy for your kind of children and wife really sort of motivated you to write fairly Definitely. fairly so um how, could you maybe would you mind maybe telling us a little bit about how that shift impacted your approach to writing um i wanted to i definitely wanted to leave a legacy for my kids i think that i might die i wanted them to actually be able to hold something and there's something very physical about a book that gives people something it's not just words it's something physical and i very much wanted to do that and I felt that I wanted to I mean cancer is obviously pretty horrible um but it did it does sharpen your life goals you get a sense of perspective about what's important and in that sense I knew that I wanted to write and I kind of had to write it was a it was an urge in me an urge in me that I felt that was kind of beyond my wishes it was something that I absolutely had to do mm. wonderful well it's yeah an incredible book. The, one of the things that really, um, really struck me about this is obviously it's written from the from the point of view of Rob, your protagonist, and um, and he speaks so amazingly or well, tenderly about his wife and his child and his and his dad as well. That really kind of like having having lost his dad in the book, like that was kind of it really came through. And I think um, you know the t- that sort of tenderness and insight into male vulnerability that d- it doesn't tend to be that prevalent in literature. And if if it has done, I don't feel like I've come across it. Um, do you feel that the kind of male perspective on um, something that we're m- more used to hearing from from women is an aspect of the book that's really contributed to, to its success? Possibly. Um, I mean, a lot a lot of women have, have said that to me about how it's refreshing to hear it from the father's perspective. And I think it, I think that's probably true. I think you do 
hear that less from male writers perhaps but I mean the male writers I like I mean I I like well I used to sort of read a lot of Nick Hornby and I like David Nichols and I think you do get that tenderness um in there so I don't think it's I don't think that's particularly unique but it's nice to hear that it's it it, it impacts people in a positive way and We in the Sky is, is fiction but it is, you know, is based on and uses your own experience, obviously, especially, in, you know, in the detail. Did you ever feel a responsibility writing about a disease that is so horrific and affects so many people? Did you ever sort of feel a responsibility to write about it more sensitively or a responsibility to people who might read it and be going through either early stage treatment and and what sort of, you know, does that have an impact on the way you write that sort of sense of responsibility? Yeah, I think that's, I think responsibility is a good word, and I've never really thought of it like that. But I think it was a sense of, I wanted to write a cancer book that I wanted to read. Mm. And there was a, I read a lot of cancer books, and there was a lot of cancer books that I absolutely hated. I mean, there was a, there's a lot of raw, raw cheerleading in the cancer community. And cancer books are often written by people who survive. Um, and sometimes for obvious reasons they're not written by those who die and sometimes when people write cancer books when they do die they have a kind of sense of purpose and it was all good in the end but I don't actually feel that a lot of people who are suffering with cancer or who die of cancer feel like that I think they feel pretty shit about the whole thing and there's nothing good that ever comes from it so I wanted to I wanted to write and my own personal perspective was about the despair that cancer patients feel and the loneliness which explains why in the book people do reach out online um, and find support among cancer communities. And, and, and that was something that I, I did have. The, 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 a cancer community features a lot in We Are In The Sky, um, as you know, after reading it. And that came directly from personal experience because I was a mem- member of a few Facebook communities that were incredibly helpful um, in, as a sounding board for advice, emotional, medical support, everything. And also, like with the with that kind of storyline, like I don't want to give too much away, but the kind of it's it sort of also brings up the kind of darker side of that kind of supportive community and stuff. Was that something that you really wanted to touch on? Like I was kind of shocked that that would be something that could even happen, but obviously, not. yeah, yeah. You the, there are within cancer communities. There are generally the one I was a member of was incredibly or is incredibly well moderated, so you don't get many or any charlatans offering alternative fake cures but many cancer communities aren't and you always get patients who often are at the end of their lives and they go to expensive clinics in Mexico or various places and basically pay thousands of dollars sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars to do bogus treatments so I understand I would make no judgment against those people because I understand why they do it because Mm. they're desperate they don't have any other choices um so the real criminals here are the people who are offering these fake um and that's a very real thing within cancer yeah can't believe that one thing that um that another another thing that I noticed that is just so well done is um, how you how you kind of detail the or how you subtly get in all of the kind of conflicts and issues that kind of arise between the between the couples between the sort of communities people that are trying to support the family and stuff like that and it's you know there's as a reader when you're reading through that it may it helps you to understand just like all of the conflicts involved you understand everyone's point of views and so you see where there's kind of this problem where 
people just have a miscommunication or, you know, like you, yeah. you can't be angry at anyone for how they've responded to what it just shows how complicated the matter is. And you've yeah. done that incredibly, incredibly well. I think it gives people that haven't been through it a, a real understanding of the topic and of just, yeah. It's, well, it's, thank it's, you. It's, it's very, it's very different with cancer because you never know what to say to people with cancer. It's one of those awkward things. And people with cancer can obviously be, um, justified I think in being um, defensive and get offended by what people say but cancer patients myself included can also be a bit oversensitive about it it's a very difficult thing and, and I can think back I mean I probably while I was oversensitive about what people said to me I probably said before I had cancer I probably said incredibly insensitive things to people who had cancer or whose relatives had cancer because you just don't think so I think and, and and in the book I wanted to get across that that kind of confusion and how friends can be well-meaning but might not always say the nicest things or most considerate things mm-hmm. I was very oversensitive about people because I had bowel cancer which is something that's not the most romantic cancers but it's the one that um that it's a bit, it is sort of considered a lifestyle cancer in the sense that, you know, there, there is emerging evidence that does show that some people with bowel cancer, that lifestyle factors like diet and, you know, alcohol consumption and things might be a factor. And this was something I felt very sensitive about because I felt that I was somehow being shamed or being blamed for the contribute the contribution to my own disease, which, to be honest, as I, my oncologist said, you'll never know whether anything you did it just one of, could be just one of those things. Could be because you ate too many Big Macs when you were 25. We just don't know. Um, but I felt very oversensitive about that, and I feel much less sensitive about it now. But so I do understand those things. Did you find then that writing the book was sort of offered you a bit of a safe space to speak openly without fear of someone looking at you blankly as you're trying to explain something, or or judging you, or criticizing you? It was you know your sort of almost chance to just just talk openly without having to sort of hit all the societal kind of little tick boxes we put up for people who've got you know serious illness yeah i think so i think and i think safe space is a very way a very good way of putting it i felt especially as it's a work of fiction you have a little bit more freedom um and you can say things in voices other people's voices that you wouldn't necessarily say in your own voice or in other people's voices in a non-fiction setting so definitely um and i've uh, you know as talked about before i found that very very cathartic and very helpful um for my own recovery which is the best thing about writing that it is very cathartic and you mentioned there about fictionalizing it could you talk a little bit about that? How did you go about the process of fictionalising, you know, what was an experience that had happened to you and what would you suggest to authors who want to do the same? Um, well, I think it's a tough one because my book went through, like most books, it went through several different, um, well, many, many different, 10, 12 different versions. And um, in an earlier version of the book, the, it was the protagonist who had cancer rather than his son. And... Um, I think, you know, the old adage about like, write what you know, I think is a good one in some senses, but the problem about write what you know is then you get too close to the subject. You get too close to it. And to be honest, um, a 36 year old man with stage three bowel cancer doesn't necessarily make for the best story. And that's the problem. But because you're in it, because you're in that story, you think that it's the most important story in the world. And sometimes you just need to take a step back and add a couple of car chases. 
and and then it, and then it, but but really, but you need you need to step back and think. Actually, is this story so interesting? And sometimes in early versions, I got too bogged down on a lot of the detail that was very important to me, and I forgot about the fundamentals of character um, and the fundamentals of, of plot. Um, but for me, I was always more interested in character than plot. So. Um, yeah. I was going to actually ask, like the um, one thing that, you know, it's very clear how much you have wanted to kind of get in there, all the different people's perspective, all the different people's reactions and all that kind of stuff. And I wondered whether that kind of came to that those things kind of went in as you naturally wrote the story or whether they were kind of things that you were like, right, I'm going to include these. And then as you edited the book, you went in and kind of made sure that they were covered. Um, it was a bit the opposite process is that I, I had too many, there was too many like what I would call sort of almost like didactic points that I wanted to put in the book. And it was about, oh, I have to get the forum post from the woman who says this or what about this treatment or whatever, because that was something that was very interesting to me. And as the book went on and it went through the edits with my agent and then the edits with the editor in the US and in the UK, all so much of that stuff got taken out. Because it didn't, it didn't further the plot. It didn't enhance the characters. It wasn't really adding to the tension. And I think that was my mistake. I tried to get too much in there, which doesn't appear now, but it's still in my cuttings folder. So, yeah. how, so how long did it take you to write the book, and how many edits did you go through? Um, it it uh, so uh, so a total of three and a half years. Um, Totally three and a half years, including that was when I was finally done with all the edits was three and a half years. Yeah. And it went, I can't even remember how many edits were. I mean, I probably did like, I think I calculated one time it was about 12 or something, 10 or 12. And how many of those edits were, had contained the 36 year old man as the protagonist, as the, the person that was ill rather than? Oh, prob- probably only three. Okay. okay. Two how, or three, yeah. How did, it, how did it feel making that like quite big decision to change the plot so much? Uh, well, I it, so I, I submitted the book in 2015, um, and I, I sub, yes, 2015 first. I submitted it to like six agents, and uh, I think three, three, three rejected, and three or sorry, two wanted me to revise and resubmit it, um, and one of them was my agent Juliet Mushins, and I had a. I had a phone call with her and she was very clear about what she liked about the book. And it really made me recon. It was, I, I'd been going in the direction anyway, but it meant just completely changing everything, killing characters, changing the protagonist, changing the whole story. But she was very clear about what she liked. And she was quite, she was very good about saying, no, no, just get rid of that character. You don't, you don't need her. And it was great for me as a and 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 then a, and then I spent sort of nine months rewriting it along how I thought and some suggestions she made and then submitted it to her and she liked it and and took it on so that was good. Was there anything that she suggested that you thought no I have to keep that in there? That's the deal breaker. No, no, not really. She she just had a really clear vision about um, about what she wanted and that or not. What I, I, I I'm saying it the wrong way. I'm saying. She, she had a clear idea about um, getting rid of one particular character and how I could change the focus. But she wasn't right, you know, she wasn't like giving me a sort of plot by uh, chapter by chapter guide or anything like that. But she just made me think about it in a different way and the bits that were strong and the bits that weren't. We've heard a lot about Juliet. She's um, a lot of our authors 
are represented by, by her. So and, and it sounds like she just gets the best deals. We heard you've been you've sold your rights in thirty countries. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, That's it's good, so yeah. amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. It must feel incredible to have gone on the journey that you have, and it yeah. now to be out there and receiving the response it's getting, and then for it to get such a lot of coverage. It's going to be around the world. It must feel amazing. Yeah, and it's really nice to see the uh, all the foreign covers. Yeah come in and be made up and you sort of see your name on these foreign translations and that's quite that's quite amazing yeah yeah congratulations and thank you prior to we own the sky you published a kindle single yeah so that's not something i'd come across before can you tell us a little bit about what that process involves yeah well i'm not sure how um i don't know I don't know much about Kindle singles um, at the moment. So I, I wrote mine in 2012. And it's a thing that you, they, I think they do some fiction, but it's mostly non-fiction. So it's, it's sort of stuff, I think, between sort of 10, 20,000 words is normal. Um, and you have, to, you have to apply for it. Um, and, you, you know, they have a submissions process. And then you get, um, you, you know, they agree or not. And then they take a cut in the thing, like sort of, I can't remember what it is, sort of 30% or something. I'm probably giving all the wrong information here. So I hope people <laughs> listening to this will look it up and check what the rates are and everything. Um, but yeah, and, and they, they do sort of, it's a lot of law, long form essay type things. And I wrote mine, I'd written an article for the guardian about, uh, sort of watching my dad die and having the problems I had in having a final conversation and our sort of need in society to feel that we need that final conversation. And then I just wanted to, to write something longer so yeah it's called unspoken and how did you like what was the so you how did you find the process of doing that compared to what you like the traditional process i suppose it sounds completely different actually doesn't it it's just yeah but you mean the process of sorry i don't quite understand so in in terms of like um you had to submit it was it was it kind of like the same kind of thing did you did you submit the whole piece or did you submit kind of three chapters to kind of a board or how did it work sorry yeah, I, I get you no it was it was just um you just had to write a pitch um and that was it to be honest it was it, i didn't i didn't have to do any advanced chapters or anything like that so it wasn't it, too bad it sounds like a really good thing for people who are you know who, who sort of have an idea of a book that they want to write but maybe haven't quite formed it yet as a sort of springboard to kind of crystallizing or fine lining ideas did you find that yeah i, I think so I, th- I, th- I think it's a really i think it's a really good thing i don't know how successful kindle singles are i'm not sure how successful the the program is but for me it was a, it was a nice it was a nice sort of halfway house between self-publishing and traditional publishing i quite i quite like the model and i like the editorial support like i work with an editor there who you know did proper structural edits and line edits and for me it, you know and the editor was great and there was a lot of good feedback and, and and it was a good i mean i do write for a living but i hadn't written anything that long um apart from a failed novel i wrote when i was like 21 but mm-hmm. so. and what was that about can we ask yeah it was about um uh i should remember this shouldn't I? it was about um a guy uh who I'm, I'm, this was the problem with the novel. I'm struggling to even say what it was about. It was about a guy who um, was the kind of village oddball. It was called The Village Idiot. Um, and he um, was a bit of a fantasist, but actually a lot of the stuff was actually true. And then there was a psychologist who kind of 
made him believe that he had all these implanted memories. It was all over the place. It should have been. It should have been rejected. It wasn't very good. Oh, I don't know. I think there's something there. <laughs> and and are, you, are you writing something new currently, or what's? There? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a second novel that doesn't have a title, um, and it's about a comedian who goes blind and revives his career when he goes blind. Um, and I, I, I want my dad who passed away. My dad was blind from birth. So I grew up with a blind father and I've always wanted to, which for me didn't seem growing up like a huge deal because it was just my dad. Um, he was a very accomplished man. But, um, but I've always wanted to write about blindness because I think depictions of blind people in society often, I think they're either infantilized or they're given a sort of um, notion of this wise sage um, who can, can't see with their eyes but can see other things, you know, with their other senses. And I think all depictions are very cliched and I want to write a more realistic version without being a blind person myself, but having experience of, you know, the world of blind people about um, that's more realistic and just depict blind people just, you know, do everyday jobs as normal people. And so, you know, and I've, I've always wanted to write about comedians because it's something I'm interested in. So, yeah, so so that's the novel I'm working on at the moment. Excellent. Are you on, are you on deadline or when? when no, not, not refreshingly not. No, um, I'm not. So, I'm, I mean, I have a day job, so I just get up at five every morning and yeah. do a couple of, couple of hours on that um, and, you know, try and make progress that way. So That's what we were going to I was going to ask, like, as a lot of, like, Rosie and I are both freelance writers and we're trying to, both trying to write second book and so it's it's I was going to ask if you had any tips for people that are trying to <laughs> write for a living but then also write a, a book and yeah and then juggle well, all life everything else about life <laughs> my my only tip would be and I don't I'm not great on writing tips because everyone's got a different process but for me what's always worked for me is always make sure you write a little bit each day ideally because if you write for half an hour a day and you do that for every every year sorry, not every year, but for a year, you can write a surprising amount of words. And I think people see a, a novel and think, oh, that's a huge amount of words. But you can do it. You can do it. You just have to write a bit each day. If you don't write every day, you won't produce anything. And and my other, and this isn't my advice, it's the old advice is just write, a, don't be afraid to write a bad first draft. And I know not everyone writes that way because some people are planners, but for me, I, I just want to bang it out and half of it's shit and that doesn't that doesn't matter at all you just got to bang it out and then you'll have something and then you'll read it and you'll bit and sometimes those bits that you thought were really shit you'll be like actually that is quite good and there's an idea here and a character will grow in front of your eyes that you hadn't expected and I was I was writing um, uh, a, a guy called Tony in my book who is quite a small character and I quite liked him I started playing around with him and he's become quite a a major character in the book from just being a side character and that doesn't that wouldn't happen unless you have the freedom the creative freedom just to bang it out and, and i think you have to say to yourself just bang it out just bang it out it's a good one and do you do you find when you when you say that i always wonder because like with if I, I with my first kind of draft technique i end up writing loads and then I, and it's not necessarily in a linear fashion like, right do, would you say that you write the story from start to finish that's your first draft process or do you build it from other, from lots of different bits and bobs? I know, I just go all over the place. I don't really, I, I, you know, and then I write bits on characters, not in a linear way at all. I'm just trying to write as much as possible and, and get it out and goes in different directions. And I would never, like, I'd be ashamed to show anyone what I've written because it's just, it's just like, it's just rubbish and it wouldn't make any sense. 
Um, but I, for me, that's always been the process that works, and it's not linear at all. Yeah. I often don't, I, I kind of might have a vague outline of the story. You know, I mean, I knew that this was a comedian who goes bright, blind, and I know about the vague, you know, I know who the characters are for the most part. But apart from that, that's, that's as much of a plan as I have. Yeah. Interesting. Sounds Interesting. great. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Brilliant. Well, thank, I've really enjoyed speaking to you, so thank you so much. Oh, pleasure. It's been our pleasure too. So yeah. thank you so much. Good luck with the rest of your day. And yeah. yeah cool. Um, Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com. <laughs>